Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. I'm so glad you're here today. I am excited about this guest. You know, I get some pretty amazing clinical professionals, some therapists along the way in this work who I think really are able to speak to and articulate the kinds of issues that not only drive addiction, but underlie addiction. And so I wanted to call upon my colleague, Dr. Lou Cox, and uh, let me introduce, well, let me first say hello. Hello, Dr. Cox. Hey there. How are you doing, Rob? I'm good. There, we did that part. Okay. Now, let me tell you a little bit about him. He's an amazing man. Dr. Lou Cox, who's in New York, is a clinical psychologist with 55 years of experience. That's 55 years. I can't tell you how meaningful it is to have someone who sat in front of people for that long. In his private practice, he works as a psychotherapist, an awareness trainer, and an addictions specialist. He works with individuals, couples, and families. Dr. Cox also has an an organizational consulting practice, which he calls Ego Mechanics Incorporated. I love that, Ego Mechanics, which is what the book is about. He trains teams in a method of group communication that trains and sustains high team performance and team integrity. Welcome, Dr. Cox. So glad you joined us. Thank you so much for having me on. So uh, this whole ego thing, you know, I hear about it. It's like uh, the thing that we don't like about people, their ego. It, It usually means something negative like being egotistic or, you know, having a, an inflated sense of yourself, grandiosity, narcissism. Is that how, is that what you're talking about when you mention the word ego? Are you talking about something negative when you, in your book, Ghost in Your Machinery? Well, the ego has upsides and downsides. And the sort of description of the ego you just gave is the popular understanding of that word as we use it in our sort of everyday conversation. It's it's the sort of inflated person, the guy's trying to be the big shot or the controller or whatever. In in my understanding of the ego, it's quite different. There are, just to give you an example, there there is that kind of ego that is for that ego being safe, being uh, acceptable means being Dominant means calling attention to themselves, means always pumping up their image, means doing all that stuff we typically associate with. I don't know anybody like that, Dr. Cox. <laughs> yeah, no therapists, no one who might be doing the show. I have never met anyone like that. Of course not, yeah. But anyway, please continue. <laughs> there is another category of ego. I call that the uh, self-aggrandizing 
ego. There's a self-diminishing ego. Mm-hmm. And that ego, for that ego to be acceptable, to have worth and value, that ego requires its host to always present themselves in a self-diminished way, in a, no, we're not going to upset anybody. I'm not going to compete with anybody. I'm not going to put myself forward. I'm not going to cause conflict. It's like the caretaker folks who do that compulsively. So those are two broad categories of ego. For me, what what kind of captures the ego is that whatever you've learned of how you must be to be acceptable and safe in your tribe, that becomes compulsive, compulsory, and driven. So, you know, you could learn you got to be the smartest guy in the room or you got to hide your smarts. You could learn I got to be, you know, the, the most uh, loving one uh, and then you have to do that all the time or I have to be the one that really is mean and controls people through meanness. So, so, so I have a question for you, Dr. Cox. Like, when do we learn this? When are you, ta- are you talking about like two years old, five years old, 15 years old, all the way through? When do you really learn how you, you deeply believe and even unconsciously believe that this is the way to get your needs met from other people in the world? When do we learn that? Yeah, it's a, it's a form of training and conditioning and it starts really early. So, but I would say by the age of seven, basic characteristics of the form of your ego, the goods and bads of your ego, be this way, don't be that way, are pretty much in place. And then they most likely are going to get reinforced over time. Some folks move into different tribes and then the content of their ego may change, but the form of it doesn't. Let me just say this up front. The ego is really becomes necessary because in some way, we have gotten the message that we're not all right as our whole natural selves, that we're only okay, parts of ourselves is okay, parts of ourselves is not. And that's the basic thing the ego is now trying to manage because we buy into it as kids, we can't help it. So it comes out of thousands of interactions with parents, with peer group, with teachers, with religious organizations, et cetera, et cetera. So let me, I'm going to bring this down to something really, really practical. And of course, about me, because I'm the one on the other end of this with you. But I'm thinking about a difference between myself and my spouse. So if I were to say, hey, Lou, will you come over for dinner this weekend? You said, great, I'd love to come visit you. I think my spouse, my husband would maybe do a little light dusting. He might move some of the dishes out of the sink into the dishwasher, and that's about it. He doesn't fear how you might perceive him when you come over if the house isn't perfect. He just wants you to come visit. Now, unfortunately, if you were to come visit and I were in charge, everything would be sparkling. You know, every surface, every, you know, there'd be fresh flowers there because I would want you to consider the visit to my home a reflection. Well, both of us, I think, would see it as a reflection of ourselves. But I would want you to see me as clean and sparkling and nice and perfect and, you know, something you couldn't help but enjoy when you walked in. And I think my husband's more like, well, come on in. If you like us, that's great. But if you don't like us, what difference does it make how clean our house is? And I wonder somehow that just seems to relate to this. It does. And how you operate, it's a good example of an upside and a downside, right? So how you prepare the house out of that, what we might say, driven necessity has a real upside. It's very welcoming. It's very honoring of your guests. It creates a beautiful atmosphere. You you know, it's a, it's a lovely, lovely thing, right? 
if you have to do it and you have to do it perfectly and you feel really scared, bad, diminished, if you don't, that's the ego at work. You, you want to be free to do that by choice. Or maybe maybe the guests come over. I'm not just speaking for myself here. I'm giving an example. Or maybe the guests come over and all I can do is keep cleaning. All I can do is keep polishing. That would be a good example of the, the downside. Right. Right. I'm not really, I set the stage, but then I can't really be in it because I, I, how it's perceived is more important than just being. Exactly. Or you're sitting there in the middle of a fairly good conversation. You notice something out of place right. and you got to interrupt it to go and fix it. Right, right. right. That's where, that's the downside, right? But that is an example. And I, I did it purposely. And thank you for taking me up on that example, because that's how we walk around the world. I mean, I walk around in the world a lot of times, and I'm using me as an example. It's not about me thinking, well, I have to look a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way, or else you're not going to be interested in me. You're not going to love me. You're not going to like me. My husband probably walks in the world. I know. He could care less what he puts on in the morning. He just figures you're going to love him or who he is, or he doesn't care. Yeah. And so it applies to the self in the same way, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, if that's a, and, and your partner, if that's like a true uh, freedom from a have to or a have to not, right? That's great. That's where we want to get to. It's like, I, I, I do have this experience of myself being okay as I am. So I'm not so driven to present in a certain way. I still have a self-interest in showing up with all of my good qualities and players. Yeah, right. Exactly. But then I think the downside in that situation might be, and I'm adding this again for all the couples out there, it's okay if I want to be perceived a certain way. But what if I say, oh, honey, we can't go to the party with you wearing that. We can't go to the party with you looking like that because that wouldn't be acceptable to me. That's when you start to see the downside. It's like, I don't love you for you. You have to become what I need you to be so that everyone will accept us according to my view. Yeah. And it's a good example of you then caught in that trap of avoiding what makes you uncomfortable. Right. Can you talk more about that? So what's a doubt? This all seems very simple until you start talking about why it's so important to keep the house clean, why it's so important to have people see me or others in a certain way. That's maybe where it gets a little darker. What's driving all that? It does get darker. I mean, it goes back to what I said about the origin of this is that we have been shamed really and devalued in certain ways and over the course of you know, thousands of experiences. So we carry within us a either hidden or felt sense that we're not okay and we're not acceptable. And we learn the ways to counter that. And those are the ones that become kind of compulsive. And, and may I say, if we went even deeper than shame, could it be that I truly believe that I'm unlovable unless I present myself to a certain way? You In other words, what it comes from is really the belief that unless I create this image for you, or I create this sense of who I want you to think I am. If I can't pull that off and you don't believe it or don't buy into it, then I'm unworthy. I'm unlovable. I'm, it really comes from a fear of abandonment. I mean, is that kind of what it is? It does. Yes. And that's, I, I would just put that as a shame experience. Abandonment creates shame. That's part of how shame comes to be. It's, it's when we are rejected or attacked or neglected and those forms of abandonment, what we end up feeling is somehow 
I'm bad, I'm not worthy, et cetera. And that is such a painful experience as a kid. Mm-hmm. And, an, and an adult. As an adult. So no wonder we try to avoid it. You know, I, I say I try to decriminalize an ego because we, <laughs> we really, you know, ego gets a bad name, but we needed it as kids. We needed to try to keep our connection with our parents and our tribe safe and sound. And we got told this is the way you do it. And we are so dependent at that point that we really don't have too much choice. Is there a healthy ego? Is there, because we're always talking about the, you know, so egotistic and all focused on themselves. And is there a healthy ego? Not in my definition. You know, in Freud and other versions of ego, they're really talking about the self, right? So, so there is a healthy self, you know, there is a healthy function. Where the ego becomes problematic is in its compulsivity, right? Mm. That you have to be a certain way and you can never not be that way, right? It, it takes good qualities. It takes your intelligence. It takes your creativity. It takes your charm. It takes your charisma. It takes your whatever good qualities you've got, captures them in a compulsive driven form, right? And then you can't stop when it's not appropriate. I mean, to be charming in a situation where you need to confront somebody with your anger, but you can't do it because you always have to be charming, that's where it gets problematic, right? So I would figure your comfortableness in being in front of people and speaking probably tracks back to how you were related to as a kid in terms of, of kind of performing or showing yourself or, you know, speaking and, you know, showing up that way. Again, I don't consider this analysis of me personally, if that's okay, but more, right, you know, right. I would think of like the ability to be very assertive in a meeting, in a business meeting and talk about your goals and get out what you want to get out is, you know, sort of the positive expression of ego. Whereas, you know, if I dominated the meeting and didn't let anyone else talk and only forced my ideas on everyone, then that would be a negative expression of ego. But you're not really saying that. I am. Yeah. It's, it's the same, both versions of a person one who's just getting their ideas out and speaking up for themselves and you know showing up we might say good right when i have to do that to the detriment of others because i have to be the one that's always in power or dominating or whatever negative so how does this lead into addiction because i have a feeling that addiction is right around the corner or with this subject yeah well i you know the sense of addiction that i have is that the power of the substance, whatever it may be, drug or sex or caretaking or work or whatever, comes not so much from the rewards you get from having the substance or doing the compulsive activity, as much as it comes from re- removing your experience of what you don't want to feel inside yourself. If I felt really good inside, if I was really, truly okay with myself, really accepting all of my feelings, all of my capacities, all of my qualities, all of my imperfections, et cetera, et cetera, I might dabble in this or that activity or drug or whatever, but it wouldn't become this necessary thing I'm chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing. Yeah, after a while, it might even get boring because I'm already okay. I'm already having a good time. Mm-hmm. Well. I guess, you know, you and I might agree. I I think that uh, substances and behaviors that are pleasurable for many people can be the icing on the cake. You know, I've got a great 
life and once in a while I go have a few drinks and get a little silly at the game but yeah it's not it's it's not i think addicts use for the secondary purpose of feeling okay whereas most people use or act out you know gambling whatever for a primary purpose which is more to have a little bit of fun right but the addict is forced to that secondary and they look like everyone else they're drinking like everyone else but the reasons are completely different yeah, the drivers. Yes, yeah. and you're saying it's the compulsivity, the vulnerability inside the person, their intolerable sense of themselves. Yeah, the need to avoid a deep down sense of, like you named it, unworthy. I'm not enough. I'm I'm bad. Just that's that's a. I think, in one way, we're all escaping, more or less effectively. Like we find ways to get away from that that work pretty good in our society. But if we don't find those ways, then we start to turn to ways that end up becoming problem makers rather than problem solvers. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. And this is why maybe, and I'm just taking a leap here, that maybe it, it may not be your caregivers but it really only takes one or two people to be examples of stability and love early in life and children will lean into that children will look for that children will find the person or the people who will give them that even if it's just a teacher or a, a parents of a friend or they will get so much from that even if they can't get it at home because we are eager to feel it i mean obviously in adult life but as children there's nothing more important than being accepted valued stimulated loved and appreciated and if you don't get that as a child you know and i think this is really important to what dr cox is saying you know we don't look at ourselves as five years old sitting in a room by ourselves not having had dinner and say oh well i get why mom and dad are yelling in the next room it's because mom's an alcoholic and dad has an eating problem and they hate each other when you're five years old sitting in that room you just think what is wrong with me that i don't deserve love and then you try to figure out what you have to do to get it. And I think some of these ego behaviors that you're talking about, some of these ways of defending are what those of us who have a lot of trauma in childhood do to try to figure out how to get loved. Yes. And be safe, you know, not be attacked. You know, there's a, there's a story I often use to illustrate how kids assume that if something's wrong, they have something to do with it. There was a shooting incident many, many years ago out in California in a, like a kindergarten or a first grade or something. It was a horrible experience. After it, there was a reporter interviewing, and after it, they tried to help the kids by defining the shooter as a monster. In an interview with a reporter, one of the mothers of one of the kids that survived, and the kid was there with her, was they were talking, and the kid pipes up and says, why did the why was the monster mad at Mary and Jimmy, assuming right away that Mary and Jimmy had something to do with calling down that kind of violence? So that's a, just an illustration of how we take on as kids the assumption that somehow we're bad that if, if bad things are going on. I, I just want to I want to add one element here. 
that you're right absolutely the the need for embrace and love and being seen and being valued is primary and fundamental there's also another need and that is the need to be myself to be true to my own experience to develop a sense of autonomous self right the duality of those uh the coexistence of those if both of those needs are addressed as kids then we come up not having not denying our dependence on people and our need for cooperation and love but celebrating it and also having the integrity and the courage to act in our own behalf even when it may threaten our connection to somebody right so that it interestingly sort of speaks to both ends of a parent's responsibility which is one you know to unconditionally support and love a child in their earliest days, pre-seven, and explain to them why things are if they're troubling so the child doesn't take it on themselves and reassure them that it's not their fault. But also the other equally, I think, important job of a parent is to be able to let go and have that child not be an extension of themselves, but actually be an individual. And I think that's the part you're talking to at the other end. Yeah, to allow them to be different if they are, you know, yes. and have a different experience if they do. Because right. if you're taught by mom, not because not she's a bad person, not because she didn't love you, but because she might be a little broken. If you're taught by mom and dad that the only way to get love is to be who they want you to be, then you don't learn a whole lot about who you are, but you learn a whole lot about how to please other people and look for signs and signals in every situation that you're doing what other people want you to do while your soul starves. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yes. Yes, yes. And it's interesting where this side of the coin, this need for a sense of autonomy and dignity and personal power comes into play in addiction, is that when that need is not met and violated, that's also a humiliating, shaming experience. So, so one characteristic of addiction is the denial that one is out of control, right? That's sort of the last thing the person wants to admit. And that has to do with the sense of, I'm my own person, I'm making choices, I'm a free will person, don't tell me I'm out of control, right? Because I can't stand looking at that fact that in this instance, I really am out of, out of control. And so you're giving reasons why addicts defend their behavior beyond their loving the addiction or feeling that it resolves their problems in the moment, they also can't consider the possibility that what they've been doing has been wrong and the way they've been living is wrong because that means that they are wrong. Exactly. So they're running from shame and the, the use of whatever they're doing helps that. And then they have to defend their autonomy, you know, that I'm not out of control. I'm doing this because I like it. So I think, folks, if you listen in between the lines, and there's a lot of psychotherapy babble going on here, but which Dr. Dr. Cox and I, by the way, love doing because we understand this stuff, which you may not, and that's okay. It's not your job to understand it. I think to break it down, what we're basically saying, and, and Dr. Cox, I want you to weigh in on this. I think we're basically saying that much of what we see as addiction and some character personality problems that we are persistently see in our culture uh, relate profoundly to early childhood experiences of love, stimulation, validation, and acceptance, and also the ability for parents to respond in a consistent way that is about the child and not about them. 
And if that happens, then the child develops a sense of autonomy, a sense of appreciation to get their needs met. They know what their needs are. They're not ashamed for having them. They trust that people will meet their needs when they ask for them. And then when they are having a bad time later in life, they just ask people to meet their needs rather than saying, people aren't safe. I got to do this on my own. It's only going to bring shame if I reach out for help. I better go sex, gamble, game, or drink. Did I get that right? Yeah. And if people are not meeting my needs and I have enough of a sense of, of autonomy developed, I can address that and not be seeking to get that person to do it when they can't, right? And that's the other piece I wanted to bring up because you've really illuminated a beautiful problem in relationships, I think, which is about everything I've learned about relationships and people, this is maybe useful to you. I remember in early graduate school, there was a person who showed, and I'll give you the visual, they had their two hands, they were holding out in front of them, and they had two fists, very gently, loosely made. And they said, these two fists are you and me as individuals. And then they opened up their hands and they entwined their fingers and they closed their hands. And they said, this is you and me together. It kind of looks like, you know, church steeple when you're holding your hands together kind of thing. And then they said, the greatest challenge for people as couples is not to be together. And they show the two hands together and not to be separated. And they show the two hands separate. But the constant coming together and separating that a couple has to do in order to be healthy individuals in the world but also walk around as a couple. And that the most difficulty that couples have is in the coming apart or the coming back together. And I think what you're saying is so, so important because what you're saying is on, on the most basic level that I can't tell my spouse that I'm angry at them because I'm afraid I'll lose love. And I learned early that if I express myself, mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy, whatever it is, that they might walk away from me. And so what I learned was to not express myself and put up with stuff that I really am not happy with in order to keep the other person happy because my fear is that they're going to leave me. And in that fear, we get stuck together because I can't separate from you, which is the healthier thing to do to say, I'm angry at you. I don't like what you're doing. We need to talk about this. I'm too afraid you're not going to love me anymore. Yes, precisely. The other strategy is to deny your need for love you know and that this is like going this is like going crazy on the autonomous side right and and then being a bully you know and and not being a, a, abusive in the relationship right those are both kind of downsides of an ego for you know in terms of my own personal history i was raised in a way where any kind of display of anger or disagreement or difference of opinion was, uh, you know, end up being dangerous to my health, I'll put it that way. <laughs> so I became a very good boy. You know, I was a very compliant, very non-aggressive, non-competitive, even non-ambitious, always like, you know, trying to look safe to another person and please the other person. I get married and you know, now I'm out in the world as a young adult and I'm missing a basic tool, and that is my own aggression, my own self-assertion, my own capacity to really speak up for myself when I'm not being treated well or I'm, my needs are not being met. Which, which is basic to being a man. I mean, double, double whammy shame, right? So I was a failed male. You know, I, right, I did right. not have that aggressive aspect of how men are supposed to be. We'll say assertive, maybe not aggressive. But well, assertive is assertive is for the male ego. It's about aggression. Yes. No, I get that. I just, I know that the general public thinks of the word aggressive, not in the same way that you and I might think about. So that's why I use the word assertive. Right. Yeah. I'm always thinking that everyone who's listening may not have any understanding of psychotherapy whatsoever. 
And so aggressive to me sounds like the guy is about to hit you. Well, it's it aggressive to me is is in that realm, right? Where you're 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 intimidating. You're not just asserting. You're intimidating, right? So assertion to me is non-intimidating. It's just me putting myself forward and showing up for myself, right? That's the healthy self, right? That's not an ego. So, Doctor Cox. I ask this question almost of all of the really, really acknowledged experts who've been in the field a long time, written books on all that stuff that I get on here, which I'm grateful to have all of you folks. I'm thinking about the person sitting at home and they haven't had a lot of therapy and they don't have a lot of money or resources for therapy. They're either a sex addict or they're married to one or they're avoiding love because they think they're never going to find it. And they're, they understand what you're saying. I think they do, that, that a lot of the challenges we have as adults are things that were learned, burned in early in life. And maybe they've been trying for a really long time, trying really hard to not date the same person or to, or to not act out sexually. They're going to meetings. You know, they're doing things the best they can. But, you know, you and I have had the luxury of, I believe, probably many years of psychotherapy, a lot of work on ourselves, a lot of workshops and personal development. I guess that's how we get to be paid for what we do. But how do we help people who don't have those resources? to get the help they need to heal when not everybody's going to get the therapy. Yeah, well, that's the second half of my book, really. The book is called, just let's say it again. The book is called Ego, the Ghost in Your Machinery. Great. And I named it that because our egos generally are not seen by us. They operate kind of almost like unconsciously. And I wrote that first half to, and I'm, I'm, I sort of, I'm writing for the community of people who have had some kind of wake-up call. So some people in recovery or who are doing some work on themselves for a while. I don't think the general public would relate to what I write, but I, I don't write it from a clinical point of view. I write it from a human experience point, point of view, my own and others, right? But if, if you then get a better sense of how is my ego operating in my life in ways that I want to change and start to spot it in operation, where do you go for good inner guidance instead of your ego? The, sec the second half of the book is all about that. We have such a set of resources within us that is, are not in our heads, but in our hearts and our guts in our capacity for intuition, for insight, for creativity, for emotional intelligence, for things like gut feelings that are largely not accessed because we are trained. But Dr. Cox, my gut just tells me I want to go have a good sift drink and go out and get laid. That's what my gut tells me. That's not your gut. Oh, what is that? That's your, de that's your defensive strategy. That's the ego saying, let's get out of pain. How do I tell the difference? Yeah. Well, early on, you may have some trouble, right? Mm -hmm. But if you practice, there's a practice that I try to put forth in the second half of the book of using your own personal awareness, stopping, sitting, taking your awareness out of your head, putting it down in your body. Literally, like if I asked you to put your awareness down in your right foot right now, you could feel the pressure of your shoe, the warmth of your skin, all sorts of sensations that were going on all the while we've been talking, but you didn't have your awareness there. Likewise, if I put my awareness down in the territory of my heart and gut, which down is down in the trunk of my body, all of those resources of insight, emotional intelligence, intuition, etc., will come forth. It does take practice. You have to make it a 
regular practice to go down there because we've been trained to live up in our heads and be reactive and not stop and pause and drop in. So, so just to say, technically, this will involve things like maybe keeping a journal or having a particular time of day when you have some quiet time to think through your day and reflect on any issues that have come up? Or do you have any concrete thoughts for how people might bring their awareness into themselves and how to improve themselves? Yeah, well, using a journal is one way of doing it, as long as you're not just analyzing. Like, that's, that's an intellectual function. But actually doing what might be called contemplating, you know, like, like how, do I, how did I feel today? How did I operate today? What, what did I like about today? What didn't I like, not like about it? How come I did that? What was driving that? And not analyze, but listen to what your gut and your insight and your intuition is telling you. It's like a discovery process rather than an analytical process. But I have a feeling there's a really important point here, and I want to make it for you because I, I know I read a little bit about your work. That cannot be this self-reflection, this self-examination cannot lead to, I'm a horrible person. I ruined everything. Look how look at what I did and look what I did. Boy, I don't deserve to be in this marriage. I'm such a fuck up. Somehow that would tell me that you're going in the wrong direction if that's where your self-examination leads you. Is that right? Yeah. Well, that's where the first part of the book is important because the ego is not going to let go. The ego doesn't want you to do that kind of self-reflection. That's getting out of control of the ego. The ego wants to stay in control. It's going to tell you, don't do this. You can't do this. It's not worth it. You're stupid. You're doing it wrong. You know, it, it will, it will try to interrupt your true self-reflection because the ego wants to be in control. It doesn't want any surprises. It doesn't want any self-discoveries. It wants to stay in place with its system in place because it believes that's crucial to survive. And and I want to add to that, I think for Dr. Cox is certainly welcome to disagree, but um, one of the things I tell everybody, whether we're on sex and relationship healing and you're asking me questions or I'm in, in the rooms and you're asking me questions every week, it inevitably comes up, you know, how do I work on these things? They're so unconscious for me. And I never see it. I never know it. And my answer is always, you know, not only to reflect, but to bring your reflections to other people who are working on similar things. If I go to a 12-step meeting or a support group and I talk about all of my issues with dating and how I've never really always uh, given in and never expressed myself and never, you know, always pick the person who would, you know, accept me unconditionally, but they were usually drunk, you know, that I can struggle with those things. But if I bring them to awareness and then I bring them to other people, and then I say, look, you're going to help me date. You know, you, you, I don't know how to date. I usually date the wrong person. I don't have a skill in this area. You can help me decide when to be assertive, when to. That using other people when we don't know um, is unfamiliar and uncomfortable, but boy, is it essential because left to our own devices, we will default to the ways that, of our early learning and what is most familiar to us. So there's a social piece to this, right? Yeah, I call it finding fellow travelers. <laughs> Say more about that, if you would, please. A fellow traveler to me would need to be a person who has at least had some confrontation with their shame. Yes. So they know they've got that and that they're not denying that anymore. And that it will be somewhat risky for us to talk to each other at the depth that we want to. But we want to, you know, and, and AA meetings, 12-step meetings are such a good example of that system being put in place, you know, that we, we all have been, we have bumped into our shame big time. Yes. And we're finding ways out together. Exactly. And mm -hmm. that's 
just incredibly healing. That itself, that, you know, it's like they always say, if you find another person who at least can say, I've been there, the easement of the shame is, is so critical. Like if you're going to do a self-reflection and you do it in a critical fashion, you're just burying yourself some more. So you have to bring a sense of compassion. And often that is learned through contact with other people because we don't have it for ourselves. You know, folks, when we do an inventory of people's behavior in a therapy group, which we do in sex, love addiction, and I ask someone to read their entire history of all their sexual and romantic behavior in front of eight people that they barely know, as you can imagine, that's difficult. And and when they're done, they're usually looking down at their knees and I ask them how they're feeling and they say stuff like, well, I'm pretty sure everyone in the room hates me. And then I ask them to check it out. And what we usually hear is stuff like, well, I thought it was really courageous that you shared that, or I thought it was really brave of you to be so honest, or, or I remember how hard it was for me to do that, and I just think you did a great job. And, and having that experience of your most difficult things being talked about and people saying, okay, well, thanks for sharing that, but I love you anyway, <laughs> is, is some of the most profound experiences that people can go through. Absolutely. You know, and, and the two qualities there of compassion and courage are essential to our getting loose of the ego. Because a lot of times we can't give ourselves for credit for the courage it takes to expose something that we do feel ashamed of. But it is real courage. You don't feel courageous at the start. You feel like you're shaking in your shoes and you're just going to get you know killed for what you're revealing. But afterwards, especially if you get a compassionate response, you, you can, and people say that was courageous. You start to see, oh, wow. So I'm in a battleground here where a real kind of courage is required of me to confront these demons and start to get loose of them and find my native self again through self-inquiry and contemplation and talking and whatever other ways you, you do that, writing, therapy, meditating, etc. We're going to see Dr. Lou Cox. Ladies and gentlemen, what an opportunity to talk to, you know, when I listen to this voice and, and I just want to thank you, Dr. Cox, I hear someone who spent a lifetime wanting to become a better person, working on becoming a better person and wanting to teach others how to, how to do that for themselves. And, you know, that's the, that's our journey. I admire you. I appreciate you. And, and let me ask you, where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you or your book? Ego, the ghost in your machinery. Well, my, my practice is in New York City. I'm, I have an office up on East 79th Street. If they Google egomechanics.com, all my information is there. And I think your book, I think you got a website called theghostinyourmachinery.com. Is that correct? There is that too. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Cox. I look forward to us doing more work together. You will always be at the top of my list for people who need to find peace with their struggles. Uh, thank you, man, for doing the good work you do. And, and, uh, and thank you, folks, for joining us today. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. Com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. 
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.